Welcome to the Parlay Podcast, a thought-provoking and entertaining podcast that breaks down the pathology of speech, language, and other processes that affect the way we communicate on a daily basis. Professor of Speech and Language Pathology, Chantal Mayer-Crittenden, hosts a bevy of guests who help her explore and explain the diverse landscape of speech, language, and their relationship with the brain. This is already episode eight on the Parley podcast. This is your host, Chantal Mayer Crittenden. And today we are back in the recording studio at Laurentian University. So sometimes I do these in my kitchen, sometimes in my office, but today we're a little bit more formal in um, our studio here. I have with me Dr. Diana Kaholik. She is an associate professor here at Laurentian University and also a social worker. Um, and Diana does some amazing work with uh, marginalized youth, with, with different groups of children, uh, mainly on mindfulness. So I will let uh, Diana talk a little bit more about herself, maybe uh, explain to us what, what you do, just generally. Okay. Um, so as you said, I'm a professor in social work. Um, I'm also a clinical social worker, uh, and I have a small psychotherapy practice. Um, and I'm a researcher, a qualitative researcher. I, I've been researching for over 10 years now uh, the benefits of an arts-based mindfulness group program. Okay, can you maybe tell us a little bit more about mindfulness? I know that in the media, um, especially if you work in education, it's it's a term that we're hearing a lot more of, but I feel like a lot of people don't really know exactly what it entails. So maybe start mm-hmm. by telling us, what is mindfulness? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, uh, mindfulness is a holistic philosophy. So it's really a different way to live your life. Um, so there are, are practices that go along with mindfulness, like mindful breathing, and uh, what they call daily life mindfulness. So um, that's where you would try to bring your attention and focus to something you have to do anyway. So for example, washing dishes is a really common example. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of people when they wash their dishes are not paying attention to what the dishes look like, what the soap smells like, what the water feels like, right? You're washing your dishes and you're thinking about something else. So just that, you know, practicing bringing your attention, your focus to what you're doing in the present moment. So mindfulness is really about living in the present moment, moment to moment. Um, And what's really important is that you're doing that with, with no judgment, so you're not judging your feelings and your thoughts, right? So a mindful person really goes through life trying to understand um, what is happening. So if you start to feel something, a mindful person sort of approaches that with curiosity and wonder, and, and they might ask themselves, okay, so why am I starting to feel anxious? Like, mm-hmm. did I see something? Did somebody say something? Was I thinking about something? And they try to understand that. So a lot of people... Um, they start to feel that and they don't want to feel it. So they repress it. They try to push it away or they distract themselves, right? So I was talking to a teenage girl not too long ago and she told me like when she starts to feel that anxiety, she just pulls out her phone. 
and she purposely distracts herself, right? Mm-hmm. And that's not a good thing to do because then that emotion basically is just being repressed and it builds up, right? So over time, that's just going to get worse. Okay, that's very interesting because I think as adults, at least a lot of people that I surround myself with, we we try to become more and more aware of our surroundings, of our emotions, of our anxiety, if we have anxiety. But you're doing this mainly with children and youth, right? Uh, well, my, so my research has been mainly with okay. children and youth. Um, I use this a lot in my practice as well. And I work with a lot of children and youth in my practice, but I work with a lot of adults too. Okay. So for a lot of adults, this is really uh, important for them to learn as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, so maybe you can talk to us a little bit about your research then, and then if we have time, we can kind of perhaps talk a bit about how you're doing this with adults. Um, So you run a 12-week holistic arts-based program called the HAP program, so the Holistic Arts-Based Program. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Sure. So the um, program uh, is 12 weeks long. Uh, And traditionally, we offer it two hours a week. Uh, When we first started, um, we were working with younger children, so children from the ages of 8 to 12, and primarily involved with the child welfare system. So we knew that um, we needed to develop a program that was going to engage them and be fun uh, so that they would keep coming back. So it just made sense to incorporate the arts-based methods as a way of teaching children these concepts and practices. So we knew the arts-based approach would be engaging, um, it would be enjoyable, and it also makes sense because in terms of communication, it's really difficult for children, youth, and a lot of adults to talk about what they're feeling uh, and thinking because sometimes they don't know um, and they they may not have that self-awareness and it's hard to express things that are felt in words, Mm -hmm. right? Like we're communicating all the time, but I think a a lot of communication, I would say, is nonverbal. So the arts-based methods are really effective in terms of helping people express themselves and also to learn uh, what it is that they're thinking and feeling. I'm really happy you brought up communication because when I introduced or when I was thinking about how I wanted to introduce this episode, I thought to myself, people might be wondering why I'm, I'm inviting you to talk about mindfulness. The whole theme of this podcast is, is about communication. I thought, no, you know what? It'll just unfold naturally and people will, mm-hmm. will understand how I see this very much linked to communication. And so how does your program help children and youth communicate their whatever, their, their feelings, their emotions, their thoughts? Mm-hmm. So in, in a lot of ways, I think when children come into the lab, when youth come into the lab, they see immediately that it's, you know, a creative space. Um, and once they start to be exposed to the activities, they see that they're enjoyable and they're strengths-based. So Um, they're not focused on problems and what's going wrong, and they're also not focused on making people talk about 
stuff that often they don't want to talk about, right? A lot of the youth we work with tell us they don't want to go to counseling and they don't want to talk about their problems. So the arts-based activities um, sometimes can help youth uh, learn something about themselves. It helps them share things about them about themselves with others, but in a safer way. Uh, they can share whatever they want to share. So they're not ever pressured or put on the spot to talk about something they don't want to talk about. But the opportunity is always there if they want to take it. So I might take a moment to play a little, well, it's a video clip, but on the podcast, it'll only be the audio clip of one of the... um, youth that did participate in the program. So this is on your website, and I will put your website on the show notes for anyone who is listening. It's dianacaholic.com. And so this is called Karina's Story, and you can find it under um, my work, and then there's a films tab. So I'll play it for a little bit, and we'll just listen to what Karina has to say about her experience in the um, HAP program. You can talk about your feelings and meet new people. You can say you have trouble with something. Um, they like to help you. And it's just really, really fun. At the beginning of our like, first session, we did our rule board where we had to write all the group rules down. And um, most of them was like, about being kind and including everybody. And... Um, not making fun of them for what they wear, what they say, and sharing and just being kind and stuff. And instead of doing like, don't be mean or don't make fun of other people, they say, be kind to others instead of using a negative term. Because you're setting up a role model for other people, including yourself by you thinking good things about yourself. If you think good things about yourself and you show it, you could be a role model for lots of other people. I think they use art because it helps people express their feelings more than like talking it out because for some people it's hard to talk it out because it may be hard for them to talk about their feelings in words. So they use art to express it. Being sad is kind of like you're falling a bit and you need to fight your way back up into the light to be happy again and it just it's just not a good feeling your stomach gets into knots and it feels tense but when I go to group if I feel that way I feel better so I'll stop it right there but I definitely invite the listeners to listen to the full story it's about four minutes long and there are actually quite a few other video clips that um, either interview the research team that work in the HAP HAP program um, and, and various other videos. So please take a look at those if you're interested. Now, if I am a parent out there and I think, wow, this sounds amazing, I would really like my child to participate, what, what do they need to know? About the program? About the program or, or who is eligible and how, how do they contact you? Or Okay. So right now uh, we're funded to work with youth from the ages of 11 to 17, uh, so we've just started our last groups for the academic year. So we'll go from April to the end of June. Uh, and then we'll be starting up again in September. So usually we start groups at the beginning of September, January, and then April. So we're going to 
be able to do this for one more academic year. So basically, people um, can just send me an email and uh, indicate interest, and we set up a like a little uh, intake uh, meeting, and they can come to the lab and check it out and meet with the facilitator and. Okay. Yeah, and the the inclusion criteria is very loose. Like it's for it's for youth who are having challenges with schooling, but that could be a whole variety of things. You know, ranging for, from anxiety uh, to feeling not included at school. Um, some of our youth have academic problems, but not all. Some do very well in school, but they struggle with the peer relationships, mm-hmm. that, that kind of thing. Uh, self-esteem, you know, low self-esteem is something that we see a lot of, so. Okay, right. It's not because you're succeeding in school that everything else is going exactly. well, right? Now, you did mention a key word there. So this is a funded program, and so this is mm-hmm. at no cost to families, right? They can that's participate right. in the full 12 weeks. Yeah, that's right. And I know that on your website, you talk a lot about um, how this program helps to improve resilience. So can you maybe touch a little bit on that as well? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so resilience, um, resilience and well-being, uh, you know, that's a big concept, right, that encompasses a lot of different things. So I think what we see in a lot of the children and youth that do the program uh, is improved mood, improved self-esteem. Uh, maybe more confidence, um, better emotion regulation, which is a an important part of being a resilient person. Um, and a lot of these things are connected, right? So it makes sense that, so emotion regulation, you know, is that ability to understand what you're feeling and then to make a decision about how you're going to express that. So a lot of children need to learn that, um, you know, some of the youth we work with are the ones that are always getting in trouble at school because they don't have emotional regulation. And it's not their fault, right? Like maybe they've had loss in their life or some kind of trauma or for whatever reason, they just haven't learned that ability. So it makes sense that when you learn that and you can actually make choices about your feelings. So, you know, for example, in this schoolyard, if somebody uh, says something and it makes you mad, being able to walk away or make a different choice about mm-hmm. that feeling rather than just reacting and, and getting in a fight mm-hmm. um, can really help you feel like, okay, you're in control and, and you're more resilient. And then, and then therefore, you're going to have better relationships with peers, better relationships with your family. You're going to be able to just engage in the learning process more. So a lot of these things are really connected. Mm-hmm. So resilience, mindfulness. Can you maybe give um, a few examples of activities that you would do during this program with the children? One of the first activities that we do is called Maze a Tree. So this is uh, just an activity where we ask everybody to draw themselves as a tree. So you can keep the instructions really loose. You can ask people to imagine what would be around the tree if you want. Uh, But it's really, really interesting Um, how people depict themselves as a tree. And the trees are always really diverse. They're always really different, which is really interesting. So, you know, that, so this is an opportunity for people to share something about themselves, but, you know, in a fun, creative way. And it also then gets us into a conversation about diversity and how, um, you know, that's important, um, that that's a good thing to have diversity in the group. And, um, yeah. 
That's very interesting. So just maybe wanted to ask for clarification. So you, you're, you're talking about diversity. So obviously there's, there's a lot of uh, children in the group. So how many children would typically be in a group? Uh, so the the groups are typically small. Um, they could range anywhere from say four to eight. Okay. Yeah, it really depends. Mm-hmm. But I should say that we're we're also rolling this this program out in a variety of schools um, this past year. And so when we're in the schools, we do it a little bit differently. Uh, we you know we have to work with the school schedule. So. Um, we might do the program in one-hour blocks, maybe once or twice a week. Um, and then I have some students actually doing it with whole classes, like doing some of the activities with entire classes. So, And I'm hearing really great things about the effects on students. And uh, like just yesterday, one of my students was telling me, we have this other activity uh, that we call Power Box. So the kids all decorate a box, and then we t- we talk about what makes you feel in control, what makes you feel powerful in your life, and you might write those things down on pieces of paper and put them in your box. Um, but my student told me that in one class, all the kids were keeping their power boxes on their desk as mm-hmm. a way to sort of remind them to focus. And but the 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 neat thing about the power box is it's really your strengths, mm-hmm. right? And it's really thinking about what you control uh, because a lot of times um, especially for children who are anxious they feel very out of control mm-hmm. uh, because their feelings are controlling them so to think about all of the things we do control right like we control how we act with people we control our decisions we control who we might be friends with you know we control we, what we eat like there are actually lots of things that we do mm-hmm. control so um, so you see how these simple activities, right, because all the activities in HAP are very simple. They're not mm-hmm. complicated, but they can lead to really um, interesting in-depth conversations, which in the program, we always try to link back to concepts of mindfulness, right? So again, from a mindful perspective, um, the idea is to focus on, okay, what do we control, you know, in our lives? Mm-hmm. Because there's so much that we don't control. Mm-hmm. But I like how you say uh, there is a lot that we don't control, but yeah. there is a lot that we do control. And yeah. I, I often talk about my own experience on this podcast. So I have, I have, I've talked about my daughter. She has ADHD. She also has a language disorder. And now we're going through the whole hormonal changes. She's she'll soon be twelve years old, and I, I see it in her on a daily basis where she's, she's aware that she's got all these emotions that she can't. I shouldn't say that she can't control. She's aware that she's got all these emotions raging through her mm-hmm. her brain. But right now what I'm noticing is she doesn't know how to control them. Mm-hmm. And so she'll say to me, you know, I, I, I hate this feeling. I don't like this feeling. I, you know, I, I want to cry. I don't know why I'm crying. I don't know mm-hmm. what to do about it. So mm-hmm. it's to find the tools to... Mm-hmm help her control those emotions and and to be a bit more mindful of, Mm -hmm. okay, I'm feeling this. What am I going to do about it? Mm -hmm. Um, And so um, she actually participated, as you know, in your uh, group. You can't say that, but I can. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And so we do use one of your activities as a thought jar. And uh, I don't want to give everything away, but we do use some of the strategies that she learned in the HAP program, and it's been mm-hmm. very, very helpful. And sometimes she'll even say to us, you know, Mom, I think you need to use this thought jar. You're, you're getting, you know, upset over whatever. And so it's, it's interesting how mm-hmm. 
she can also apply some of her new knowledge to help us mm-hmm. as adults regulate our own emotions. So I find that very interesting. Yeah, well, ideally, that's that's what's going to happen, right? Mm-hmm. The, the participants will learn the activities, and then sometimes we see that they even adapt them for their own families, right? Mm-hmm. So the thought you mentioned, the thoughts jar. So, yeah, the thoughts jar is how we teach the concept of mindfulness. So, um, you know, in a jar half filled with water, everybody would go around and put beads in that represent basically what have you been thinking and feeling today. Mm -hmm. Um, So you might say that out loud. So as you're doing that, you're kind of learning about how everybody's days have gone. Um, And then when you shake that up, you know, that really sort of symbolizes a very kind of distracted, anxious kind of mind, right? Because everything's swirling really quickly and you can't, you know, when when our minds are like that, we can't look internally and really understand what are the thoughts and feelings. Mm -hmm. But when you let everything settle to the bottom, then you can actually look inside and understand, okay, this is what I'm thinking and feeling. And the real power of mindfulness is that ability to make a decision Mm -hmm. about those thoughts and feelings. And you can't do that when stuff is swirling around, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I talked to one one, um, girl actually in my practice because I always use a thought jar Mm -hmm. when I'm working one-on-one. I find it's really um, a great way to just start a conversation with a young person, right? Because, you know, usually young people come in, they're nervous, they have no idea what to expect. And I, I just don't find it effective to sit there and to start talking, mm-hmm. right? Um, but you pull the thought jar out and you just sort of go back and forth. Okay, what are some of the things you've been thinking and feeling today? It's amazing what I can learn Mm -hmm. about a young person in a really short amount of time. Mm -hmm. And it's a different way of of saying, hey, just tell me. You're you're kind of, she's telling you or he's telling you through the jar almost. Well, it's Mm non-threatening, right? It's it's non-threatening and some of the, some of the, kids really like the beads and they're, you know, looking at the beads mm-hmm. and yeah. And, and when you do that right from the get go, they know instantly that this process is going to be different, mm-hmm. that this is, this isn't going to be like, you know, sitting in the principal's office or, you know, sitting maybe with a counselor who works a bit more traditionally and. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. absolutely. And I, I imagine the they buy into it, probably. You know, okay, this is this is good. I can most see. of the time. <laughs> yeah. But uh, what I was going to say is, so one one girl that I had been working with, she um, wanted her family to do a thought jar. So she set it up so that um, at dinner time, everybody would, you know, put a bead in, and she said um, that really helped them sort of know how everybody was feeling that day. And mm-hmm. uh, so what a you know what a great thing. Absolutely. Yeah. So I recently recorded an episode, and it was in French, and we were talking about how kids are often really hard on themselves and hard on on each other in terms of, especially in French, a lot of um, kids feel like they're they're not, their French isn't good enough because we're living in such an English community. So I had a parent reach out to me and said, wow, I really see this in my own child, and and then she went on to say her child has has a language disorder and has a lot of issues. And then she started talking about how she's noticing more and more that her child is really struggling uh, making friends. So uh, in that previous episode, we had talked about social health, and she's really concerned for her child's social health. And, and so I thought to myself, wow, well, you'll have to listen to the next episode because we're going to talk a little bit about mm. about that. And so... 
she was asking, you know, what what can we do as she's a speech language pathologist as well, and, and obviously a parent. But what can parents do to help their children, you know, if they don't have access to a, a program such as the HAP program in their community? Mm-hmm. You know, what, what would be some tips for them if you, if you don't mm-hmm. mind sharing some? Mm-hmm. Well, I think what, what I see a lot is um, that parents need to learn to ask questions and they need to learn to be okay with not solving the problem, right? And it makes sense to me. Like, as a parent, you don't want your kid suffering, mm-hmm. right? That makes sense. So, um, you know, maybe your child's crying or something and, and you're just, you know, you're giving them a solution, right? Mm-hmm. But a lot of times there isn't necessarily a solution and what that child needs is just an opportunity just to vent or just to express what... Um, you know, is happening with them. Um, so just ask questions like forget about solving the problem, mm-hmm. you know, and also believe, believe your child when they tell you that they don't know, because that's the other thing. Sometimes kids really don't know. They don't know what, why they're feeling anxious. All they know is that, you know, their stomach hurts and they don't want to go to school and they feel sick and, mm-hmm. you know, they, they know it's there, but they, they don't know what's causing it. Okay. Now those are really good tips. But if you ask, you know, if you, if you try to sort of ask them questions and get them kind of thinking a bit more about what's happening, you might be able to, to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, now, one question that I always ask, and I'm kind of changing topics a little bit, I always ask my guests is, what brought on the interest in this in this field? What, why did you choose to use this approach in your practice, in your research? Well, I, I've always um, I've always been interested in holistic ways of working. So, uh, when I started my career. Um, I was working in Toronto um, with the Elizabeth Fry Society, and my case load was women basically living in the community, so a lot of women working the streets and um, a lot of serious addiction issues, but really serious trauma. So I worked um, in the area of trauma for five years before I went to do my PhD, and then while I was doing my PhD, I worked in a sexual assault center, so... Um, I worked a lot with trauma, and when you work with trauma, um, you have to work holistically mm-hmm. because it affects people on every level, right? So physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual. So I just was always interested uh, in that work, and um, when I was developing my research program here, I was really interested in studying holistic practice. So I was trying to figure out how could I do that because uh, there aren't enough people working individually to draw on. Um, so I thought, okay, we could, we could study that through group work because then you don't need a lot of clinicians. Um, and then I also was always interested in working with really marginalized populations, like people who really need supports and services who often don't have access to them, mm-hmm. uh, which is sort of that led, kind of led to my connection with the initially the child welfare um, system. So I don't know if that answers your question, yeah. but it's... Um, it kind of just 
became something that you felt was essential. You couldn't practice without using a holistic approach. And it just kind of... Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, when you're working with a lot of issues like abuse, for example, you know, people want to know, like, why me, right? Like, when you work with a lot of suffering, like, it it raises a lot of existential issues. Mm -hmm. You know, like, why is this happening to me? Why am I suffering so much? And um, and mindfulness really, if you look at mindfulness, uh, like I said at the beginning, as a holistic philosophy, uh, the roots of it, I think, have a lot to do with trying to help people deal with their suffering. Mm-hmm. Right? That's So for me, I think it was part of my personal life, um, and then it was part of my practice, and then I figured out a way to make that part of my research. Mm-hmm. So I feel always really fortunate that I have such a strong convergence convergence between what I teach, what I practice, how I live my life, and what I research. Mm -hmm. It's all very related. Mm -hmm. And I can relate to that as well because I I feel like I live, I teach, I practice kind of all the same things, and it just makes so much more sense to me. And and. To be honest, ever since my daughter participated in the mindfulness program or the HAP program, I started questioning what we do with kids as speech-language pathologists who have a difficult time communicating. So a lot of these kids have uh, language disorders. Mm -hmm. And so by the very nature of the disorder, they have a hard time communicating. And so you add to that anxiety or, Mm -hmm. or, you know, other issues so they're they're really going to struggle to put words to those emotions because they they struggle with words on a daily basis and so um i think that there's definitely a lot to be done with children who may be struggling in general and then also have um a communication disorder on top of that yeah i think i think for me like one of one of the things that uh, because of my background one of the things that i really learned was how much uh, change can happen through the experience of fun mm-hmm. and creativity, right? So we wanted our program to be fun. And initially, I was, I, I remember sort of being taken aback at how much fun the kids were having. And that was consistently something that they would say, mm-hmm. you know, I love this program. I want to I do it again. It's so much fun. Um, and I think for me, that was because of my background in trauma where that was not fun work, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It wasn't fun. It was often really painful and difficult and challenging. So for me, uh, that was a really important learning that, okay, people can learn really important skills and capacities, and it doesn't have to be painful. It doesn't have to be this excruciating process. It can actually be a fun process. Yeah, I like how you put that because yeah. it's... It's true. We tend to think that if you're talking about or if you're if you're going somewhere where you can openly talk about your emotions or your anxiety, if you so choose to do so, that it'll be a negative experience. But no, they can yeah. they can have fun. Yeah. You mentioned a few times that you have students that work with you. Um, maybe if there's anybody out there listening that think, wow, this is really something that is interesting to me. How does a mm-hmm. student become involved in your research? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, a a variety of ways, really. Um, Sometimes I will recruit students that my colleagues tell me about. 
Uh, they might mention, you know, somebody has this background and this academic record. So I might, I might reach out to them and say, you know, are you potentially interested? So uh, I've had students do placement, you know, in the social work program, students have to do um, a 300 hour placement in third year and 400 hours in fourth year. Okay. So sometimes students do placements in my program. Um, and then I have graduate students, of course, who have identified that they want to um, do research in what we're doing. Um, so I've had students over the years just contact me, like they've, they've just heard about what we're doing and they've just said, can I come and volunteer mm-hmm. um, in your program? So sometimes I've, I've taken students that way. Um, and, uh, and then sometimes those volunteer opportunities, of course, lead to other opportunities. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, great. So I'll put, yeah. like I said, your definitely your website on the show notes, and then um, they can contact you through the website. There's the information there, or should I put the... Sure, yeah, my okay. email's on the website, okay. on so they can just uh, email me for sure. Okay. In fact, you have on your website a video of... Um, some HAP team members who describe their experience learning and practicing mindfulness. So maybe we'll take a listen to that for a little bit here. Mindfulness to me means paying attention to what's going on around you, but also what's going on inside and being able to um, respond and regulate your emotions based on what you're feeling. Mindfulness is a place that's neutral and unwavering. It's a place that I can go to at any time to kind of create some distance between myself and my thoughts and feelings. In this way, I'm able to really see how my mind works. I kind of think of it as taking a picture, a really steady picture of my mind at any given moment. But beyond that, for me, uh, mindfulness is about its concepts of trust and self-compassion and loving kindness. Mindfulness isn't just about being relaxed or being happy. It's about being aware of what's going on. And for me, sometimes that means acknowledging darker emotions and the positive emotions. So that's helped me with emotional regulation Allowing yourself to be with whatever experiences arise with that gentle, kind curiosity and just exploring as experiences arise and go away. We had a very, very challenging participant. Uh, He had gone through uh, a very rough life and he had a lot of externalizing behaviors he wasn't getting social cues so it was a very it was a very challenging time in the beginning of the groups and what we did a supervisor and I talked about it Dr. Kaholik mentioned that maybe I want to be his little his buddy and coach him through the remaining weeks of the groups and by the end we weren't sure how much uh, of the concepts that he retained and what he got until the follow-up interview. And I was absolutely proud when the parent was telling me that he was practicing it at home. He was practicing the arts-based activities at home. His relationships were much better. His awareness of emotions were much better. And it told us, even someone with maybe some intellectual delays Mindfulness was accessible 
not only accessible, but it was used outside of the group room. And that gave me the clue that mindfulness is accessible to anyone. I think it's wonderful how all of these facilitators, through their work, within the HAP program have developed such an awareness, obviously they would have to, um, of mindfulness, of resilience, of, of, like you were saying, diversity. And so, um, you know, if anyone, like we were just saying, is interested in learning more about this, then they should definitely reach out to you. So, um, and there's more of this video on the website as well. Now we talked about communication, so can you maybe tell us what does communication mean to you? Well, what you know, when I think about communication, I think what I would say is like we're people are always communicating, like always, whether you know it or not. Mm -hmm. And like I said before, I think most communication is nonverbal. Yeah, I think the very first guest on uh, this podcast um, had suffered a brain injury. And she talked about how she had to learn to monitor her body language because it was saying way more than her words. Mm-hmm. And so she wasn't really aware of all of that nonverbal communication. Mm-hmm. So absolutely, there's so much that is unsaid <laughs> that communicates how we feel, how we perceive mm-hmm. things around us. Yeah, and if, and if we go back to young people, young people tell us what's going on with them but not in words, mm-hmm. right? You see it in their behavior. Mm-hmm. If you know what to look for or if you're paying attention, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, absolutely. You gave a bit of um, advice for parents if they're wondering how they can uh, introduce mindfulness with their children. Do you have any advice to professionals, be it other social workers, educators, um, any health professionals surrounding your your approach. I know that we'll talk about your your book in a little bit, so they can definitely take a peek at your book. But um, just a word of advice for for professionals who observe this behavior, or I shouldn't say behavior, but through the actions of these children. Uh, yes. Well, what I would say um, to professionals, what I have come across is that um, a lot of times people think they need special training or they need a degree in, um, say, arts-based methods in order to be able to offer it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would encourage people to, like, if, you, if you're in a helping profession, then you have the basic skills you need to build on. So I don't think you need a degree in art therapy to, you know, to use arts-based methods. Um, there are a ton of books. Um, there are lots of workshops and lots of training to get involved in, um, if that's accessible to you. Um, so I think through reading, through workshops, through maybe supervision and consultation, Mm -hmm. you can learn to integrate this into your practice. And I think you have to, if you're working with young people, Mm -hmm. you know, if you want to engage them and you want to give them ways to express themselves in, in ways that they can't do using language, you know, using words, Mm -hmm. So I would really encourage people to investigate um, investigate that and make that part of their work. Okay, well, this ties in very nicely with, with your book uh, entitled Facilitating Mindfulness, A Guide for Human Service Professionals, which was just published in 2019. 
Um, so can you tell us a little bit about this book and what one can expect from it? Sure. So uh, I wrote the book for students and practitioners. So it's very accessible, um, and it starts with just talking about, so what is mindfulness and why should you practice it? Um, so it talks a bit about the personal benefits of mindfulness, but also the professional benefits. Um, and then um, I talk a bit about the arts-based methods and how to use those, how to, how to make those part of your work. Um, I talk a bit about group work. And then the book actually contains our program. Um, so people can basically try the program. They can try parts of the program if they want. Okay. Now, those are some um, maybe tips for professionals. You talked a little bit about parents and how they can listen to their children without trying to, to solve their issues. Is there anything else that you'd like to um, say to parents out there? Uh, the other thing that I, I wanted to say was um, a comment around emotion validation and just that like validating your child's emotions is so important, right? Like sometimes I work with parents and they might say to their children, well, don't feel that, oh. you know, and mm -hmm. that's really not what you want to do. You want to, un you know, let them express themselves, let them feel what they have to feel. Um, and don't try to reason with anxiety, right? Sometimes I, I work with parents who, yeah, the anxiety doesn't really make sense, does it? Like, mm -hmm. it's, you know, if, if, if a child, for example, is terrified that if you leave home, you're going to be in an accident and killed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that doesn't seem very logical. But it, you know, if the child is really feeling that, it's better just to let them express that and, you know, to learn to do something about that, to, to try to change that thinking, but, um, uh, but just validate Mm -hmm. emotions acknowledge that yeah. it is an emotion no that's it and that it's okay right mm -hmm. it's okay to feel that way uh like it's okay to I was working with a young girl a few days ago like and you know she was getting anxious because she was thinking about going into her classroom and there's some drama going on and she you know she was saying I don't know I don't I'm afraid I'm not gonna know what to say that's okay like, just tell yourself, like, it's okay not to know what to say, right? And you have to sort of trust that you can learn what to say. You can learn to handle this. But that goes back to your comment about um, the negative self-judgment, mm -hmm. right? That, and, and it's true. Like, so many people are so hard on themselves, yeah. right? And that's really, the, that's really the worst thing you can do is is be hard on yourself and tell yourself, well, I shouldn't be feeling that. Because if a feeling is there, it's there for a reason, whether you know the reason or not. Mm -hmm. So it's the problem with, with the judgment is as soon as you negatively judge it, it's just a roadblock and you can't do anything with it then, mm -hmm. right? It just, it just sits there. It just gets repressed and put onto this big pile that you're carrying around. Mm -hmm. so, so mindful people don't do that, right? So, like, for example, I never judge my feelings. Like, I never judge them. I never tell myself, well, I shouldn't be feeling that. Okay. Right? I, I just don't do that because I understand. Like, if a feeling emerges, it's emerging for some reason. And sometimes I might, I might not know why. I might know, oh, I'm starting to feel anxious. Right? But I have enough trust that if I just kind of sit with it and let it be, I'll figure it out. 
Okay, I like that. I'm I'm definitely uh, one who will think to myself, like, geez, why am I feeling this way? It's ridiculous, or you know, I, I should know better, or I, you know, this is silly. I shouldn't feel yeah. that way, but I'll definitely try to practice a bit more mindfulness. Even though I, uh, you know, I do try to to be more mindful of my thoughts and feelings, but I think it's probably. I don't want to say a lifelong process, but it's definitely something that that takes time to develop, and that's probably something else that people should be aware of. It's not going to happen overnight? No, well, you know what? It's a lifelong process for everybody, Mm -hmm. you know, for all of us. Um, And it is practice, like, especially if you're if you have a very distracted mind, like a lot of adults that I work with, they're, they're very distracted. Like they're, they're never kind of in the present moment. They're always worried about something that might happen or they're ruminating about something that's happened. So life is kind of passing them by and they're just running around, right, from one thing to the next thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're like that, it's, it's going to be really hard to practice mindfulness, right? Because Mm -hmm. it's such a different way of being. So you have to be kind to yourself and gentle with yourself and also like set yourself up for success, right? So a lot of mindfulness books will tell you, uh, you know, to do like a 20 minute meditation, for example, that's way too long. Mm -hmm. Like if, if you're not mindful and you haven't like that's just too you'll long. give up because they'll probably think oh, I can't do this yeah exactly mm-hmm. people get frustrated they they don't like it um and of course they don't like it mm-hmm. because that's really hard mm-hmm. uh you have to you know train yourself so I just often will say to people it's like if you're not a runner if if you don't run right. we're not going to go do a marathon tomorrow right yeah right Good so it's, so it's the same thing so just try to, uh, you know, you can try the mindful breathing, like try it for 30 seconds, see what happens. Mm -hmm. Can you manage it for 30 seconds? Okay, then try it for a minute, right? Or the daily life mindfulness is great when people feel really overwhelmed and they're really busy and they feel like they can't add anything because you don't have to add anything. Mm -hmm. Just do something you have to do anyway. So you have to walk down the hall to someone else's office. Okay, you can do that walk, but really mindfully. Okay. Right? Driving. Uh, That's something we do every dri- day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like just try to bring mindfulness to that experience of driving. Because again, a lot of people do these things totally mindlessly, mm-hmm. right? They can't even tell you, well, what did you see on your way to, to work today? Yeah. Or something as simple when you started off by talking about doing the dishes. Yeah. I do not pay attention to the dishes yeah. when I'm doing the dishes. I'm running in my head all the yeah. things that I have to do and pick up my yeah. kids at this port and tomorrow I've got to do this, that, and the other yeah. things. So um, definitely not present. Yeah. Definitely not in the moment when I'm, when I'm doing things like that. Yeah. And, you know, people know when you're mindful with them. Mm-hmm. Right. Like they know, like we know when someone is really listening to us yeah. and when they're there with us in that moment. Mm-hmm. And we like that. Yeah. Right. Um, so this is the concept of um, like therapeutic presence. Right. Or teacher presence. So people who have mindfulness um, can really form that relationship with somebody much more effectively than than people who don't. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I've felt that before when I was with someone and you know their their mind is somewhere else. Yeah. They're not with you. They're, yeah. they're with you physically, but yeah. um, spiritually or even yeah. in their mind, they're, they're not. Yeah, so just, you know, for professionals, like for me, when I um, 
you know, when I um, became much more effective, I think, with the mindfulness, for me, I, I believe that I'm more effective as a practitioner and I enjoy my work more and I'm not as tired, mm-hmm. right? And I'm more effective because my mind is not wandering, right? Right. Actually, it makes me think of, um, I had a client a few weeks ago. He actually asked me about it. Like he, cause I don't take notes when I work with people because like for me, um, it's, it's a distraction. I can't really listen to you and be with you if I'm sitting there writing. So I just don't, I never, I never have. And I've just trained myself to, you know, I do my notes after, um, when I'm done. But, uh, he actually asked me about that. Like how, how could I remember you know, yeah. session to session, like what we had talked about, say, a month ago. or okay. uh, So I found that, I thought that was really interesting because I think what he was asking me about was just my mindful presence. Mm-hmm. That's right? an interesting observation, yeah. for sure. And there's also studies that have shown, so this reminds me of multitasking. So when you're multitasking, you're not working fully on the task at hand. And studies have shown that People who multitask a lot may, if you're inclined to develop Alzheimer's disease, it's something that usually you will develop anyway, but if you are a multitasker, Mm. the onset of it will be earlier. Hmm. So interesting fact. So, you know, not being in the moment, not being present, I think is something that as a society we're doing more and more of, Mm -hmm. but also we are realizing that it is detrimental to our well-being, to our our, our longevity and, and on all of that. Mm-hmm. So you did talk about mindfulness books and, and that there's a lot of information out there. Do you have favorite resources when it comes to this? Or <clears throat> I do. I, ha- I have a few. So um, my favorite website is um, mindful.org. Okay. So mindful just with one L, dot org. Um, I like that that website. It has a wide variety of articles, and they're not long. They're not overwhelming. And um, if you're looking, say, for a self-compassion meditation, you can find one on there. Um, I think if you're interested in reading about mindful parenting, you know, you could find some stuff on there. So I often recommend that. Um, uh, recently, I read uh, a book. It's called The Yes Brain by Dan Siegel. And... Um, Dan Siegel has written a lot about mindfulness, um, but I like this book and I often recommend it to parents. It's sort of based in mindfulness, but a lot of it is about emotion regulation and basically how to build resilience in your in your child. And it's just um, it's got some good practical advice. So I like that book. Um, one book that we've been using for a long time uh, in my research is called Relax Kids, The Wishing Star. Uh, and it's by an author who her last name is um, V-I-E-G-A-S. And I really like that book and kids like this book. It's just a book full of um, a bunch of little relaxation guided imagery types of readings. And it's really colorful and the readings aren't long, so it's not overwhelming. And um, I've recommended that a lot for uh, parents to sort of read with their child before bed just Mm -hmm. to help them relax. And uh, so that's been a really effective resource. And we've 
used to use that um, in our program when we were working with the younger children. Okay. So it's not really appropriate like for kids older than 12, but okay. for the younger kids, mm-hmm. that's a good one. Um, on Twitter, I, the Gottman Institute is really a good follow. Uh, they, they do a lot of work on relationships, um, but they also post a lot of really helpful things um, just in terms of personal growth and... So that's a good little, yeah. So, and then for professionals, um, there's a publisher, they're called Jessica Kingsley Publishers. It's a UK based publisher, but they have published a ton of books in arts-based methods Um, and also working in autism. They, they've published a ton. Mm -hmm. So if you're just looking for, um, some, um, for example, resources that would have activities in them. Uh, you can find a ton of books on there. Okay. If you're interested in the theory behind the art space stuff, they've got... Anyway, it's a great resource. Okay. Yeah. And it's very timely because April is Autism Awareness Month. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'll put all of those on the show notes as well. Now, this is more of an own, my own personal curiosity. Um, how, in your opinion... Does yoga tie into mindfulness? Because a lot of the things that you're saying, I, I've started doing yoga about a year and a half ago, and I'm really, really enjoying it. It's really helped me become more mindful and more present. Um, and I notice that oftentimes during my yoga practice, I often go to classes, I, I easily drift off and I'm no longer present. And mm. so it's to bring myself back. Oh, you know, where did you mm-hmm. go just now? I'm not even really paying attention anymore, especially mm-hmm. in those moments where we're still for a little mm-hmm. bit. So mm-hmm. just cur- out of curiosity, is there, would, would that be a type of mindfulness approach? I don't know. Well, that's, that's a complicated question uh, because some people I think would argue that yoga is its own mm-hmm. distinct kind of approach, but, but then some uh, mindfulness-based programs like mindfulness-based stress reduction actually incorporate yoga movements. Okay. In the program, so it sits in the mm-hmm. same container, I think, as as mindfulness. Okay. Um, and I always say, like, if you like yoga, and and that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it can be a very mindful practice mm-hmm. for people. Yeah, just some of the things you were saying reminded yeah. me of it because I, you yeah. know, like I said, I, my mind just will start drifting, and I have to yeah. consciously oh bring it back to the yeah. present and try to focus on. Well, you know, like mindful, um, med- a lot of mindful meditation is is just about learning to focus on your breath, mm-hmm. right? So in yoga, yes, you're doing that. You're yeah. you're you know focused on your breathing. So I think like if people, um, I mean, there's so many different ways to to meditate, and if mm-hmm. sitting there sort of trying to focus on your breath isn't working, that's okay. Like, yeah. do yoga. Like, in our program, we use Tai Chi. Okay. Right? We have um, 10 different movements mm-hmm. um, that a, a colleague of ours, Hoi Chu, developed actually for our program. Okay. Um, and again, we originally developed those because we were working with the younger kids who, and, and some of the kids we were working with had a hard time just physically sitting still. Mm-hmm, I can imagine. Mm-hmm. So you can't expect these kids to sit there and meditate for a minute or two, right? So again, the Tai Chi would teach them how to focus on their breath, but using a much more kind of physical way to do it. Okay. So, and believe it or not, like there's a lot of websites and books on mindful running. 
mm-hmm. for example, like yes, that, that's that. a real thing. Mm-hmm. So, and I actually do that. Like when I run outside, I like to actually run by myself and I try to make that a mindful run. So just, you know, really, really paying attention to my body, mm-hmm. you know, my breathing, what's sort of happening around me. Mm-hmm. So I don't run with music, right? Because that would be a distraction from the... Yeah mindful running so yeah there are lots and lots of ways to to practice that that um attention to the breathing mm-hmm. and so many moments of the day where we can mm-hmm. practice mindfulness well mm-hmm. thank you so much this has been wonderful i'd just like to maybe give you the opportunity if if you feel like there's something to add is there a take-home message for listeners or do you feel like you've you've kind of touched on that already that's a hard question because um, I think like mindfulness and arts-based methods and communication, these are such huge Mm -hmm. topics. And, you know, mindfulness itself, it's complicated. Um, So maybe a take-home message is that um, to understand like this is a philosophy, it is it does have concepts that go along with it. It's not just about breathing. Mm -hmm. It's not just about learning to meditate. Um, I've actually seen that sometimes in my practice. Like I might ask somebody if they've ever heard of mindfulness and uh, somebody might have, like another type of practitioner might have mentioned it to them and basically told them to go and meditate, which didn't work out very well. Mm -hmm. And then they get really turned off by it. But it's because there's so much misconception about what it is out there. Um, So... I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, I guess just to know that it is, like you said, a philosophy Mm -hmm. and there's a lot to it. Mm -hmm. And like we mentioned earlier, it's a lifelong Mm -hmm. process. Yes. And it's Mm -hmm. just a different way to live your life. So instead of being uh, feeling controlled by your feelings um, and instead of being anxious all the time and, and distracted right? It's mindfulness is really, if you're living mindfully, it's the opposite of all of that. Mm -hmm. But it's also, um, it's also really important to understand this isn't about just our own needs and desires, right? Like when you become a mindful person, I think you, you really understand the connections between all of us, right? And the connections between us and the earth. And, Mm -hmm. and so, it's not just about like sitting in a room by yourself and trying to get something out of it for yourself. It's about understanding that we affect everybody that we have interactions with. Yeah, I really like that point yeah. for sure. Yeah, and that we're all connected, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. um, we're social th- beings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's important. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great way to end. Thank you so much. I could talk about this for hours, but I think uh, for this podcast, we'll have to put an end to it right now. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And um, I hope to perhaps maybe even have you again later on as a guest. Um, And uh, I'll have all the information on the show notes. If people want to contact you, the information will be there. So thanks so much. Thanks a lot for having me. You're very welcome. Have a great day, everyone.